Uh, good morning, church. Our sermon text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. That's page 757 in the Pew Bible. As we turn there together, let me uh, pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you in your word, Lord, we confess that for many of us, Advent and Christmas is a familiar time, Lord, having spent many years in your church celebrating this time of year. God, we ask that you would make the familiar fresh to us this morning and new. God, we also acknowledge this morning that many of us here are new to you and to the meaning of what we're doing here. God, we pray that the newness and the unfamiliarness of this would resound with deep meaning and truth. Lord, that you would invite us in this morning to your comfort and your joy as we engage with you in your word. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read this text for us as we dive into our Advent series. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. And Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, think about some of the great opening lines of literature. Call me Ishmael, Herman Melville, Moby Dick. I am an invisible man, Ralph Ellison. 
It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Jane Austen. Great first lines capture your attention and set the stage for what's to come. But perhaps as we read these opening lines of the Gospel of Matthew, which are the opening lines of the whole New Testament, which is one of the most influential works in the entirety of human history, you feel a bit let down. Rather than an in an intention-grabbing first line, what we get is a list of names. Of all the things to begin with, we begin with a genealogy. But before we jump to conclusions too quickly, read that first line again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If we can read that line with the ears of Matthew's original audience, an audience steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and the stories and hopes and desires of the people of Israel, then we might begin to see that this opening section of Matthew's gospel isn't some boring, obscure list of names, but it is in reality a page on fire with hope, with expectation, even with joy. Could we hear it that way again today? As another Christmas season begins, this season we call Advent, a season of expectation and waiting and longing and hope, could we train our ears to catch what Matthew wants us to hear, what the church throughout history has heard, and what this Christmas season just might be the very thing we need to hear? Well, if we're willing to hear it, Matthew's telling us three things here in these opening lines. It will take his entire gospel to unpack these themes, but here they are in this genealogy ready to be heard, leaping off the page. And what Matthew wants us to hear is that the long-awaited king has come, the king who brings new creation The new creation, not just for some, but for all people. Here is the king who brings the new creation for all people. And his name is Jesus. So let's hone in and let's listen a little closer. First, Matthew says that the long-awaited king has come. Again, what we have in these verses is not just a random list of names or some obscure family tree. No, this is a kingly genealogy. This is the lineage of Israel's royal house. Now consider, why did the media get all excited a few years ago when Prince William and Kate Middleton had their first son? Well, Prince George was undeniably cute. That was kind of exciting. But that's not the real reason, right? Everyone got all excited because little Prince George is probably going to be the king of England one day. Now imagine Prince George going to school one day and having to do a class project, a family tree. And he sits down to write it out. Well, here's dad, Prince William. And here's granddad, Prince Charles. And here's great-grandmom, Queen Elizabeth. And then great-granddad, King George, and on and on and on. Now, I don't think there would be a kid in his class who would find that family tree very boring. Do you? 
Laced through each one of those names is a whole history of a nation and of a people. And that's what we're reading here in Matthew 1. The whole history of a nation, of a people. It begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish family. And God's promise to Abraham that kings would come from his offspring. And so we follow the line down to David, who verse 6 tells us is the king. With David, the Israelite monarchy is solidified. David, a man after God's own heart, who would, who would represent the people as their head, who would fight for them, who would, who would shepherd them, who would provide and protect them. The one to whom God gave another promise that a king from his line would rule forever. And then the genealogy continues down from David through the years of the monarchy. Some kings good, other kings not so good. Until the crisis of the deportation to Babylon, the exile, when because of their sin, the people were defeated and taken away from their land to live as strangers in a strange land among strange gods. But the royal line continues. From Jeconiah come the generations down through the exile and the succession of world powers. The line continues through the years under the oppressive oppressive regimes of Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. Generation after generation of living as occupied, oppressed people until we come to Joseph and Mary. And from Mary comes Jesus, who is called, Matthew says, Christ. That is, the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah, the king we've been waiting for, the one who will set us free. And Matthew has crafted his genealogy with a particular symmetry. It's hard to miss at the end, right? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, 14 from exile to Christ. Is there some kind of deeper significance to this number 14? Well, there's a long tradition of seeing the number 14 as a reference to the name David. In the Hebrew alphabet, the three consonants that spell the name David are Dalet, Vav, and Dalet. Dalet's the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you add up the number value of each of the letters in David's name, four plus six plus four, you get 14. So perhaps Matthew wants us to see that even time itself is telling us that Jesus is the true son of David, the long-awaited king. But more importantly, the symmetry of Matthew's genealogy is telling us that God has been in control this whole time. Through the seemingly chaotic events of history, through the apparent failures of Israel's kings, in the dark years of exile, God has still been working out his redemptive plan in strength, in wisdom, and in care. God has not forgotten his promise or his people And that holds true for us, too. Though we do not know what time will hold, we know the God who holds time. And God, that God, Matthew tells us, is faithful, no matter how dark the road. The promise to Abraham, the promise to David has been fulfilled at the right time. 
God's king has come and his name is Jesus. Do you need a king? That question almost sounds ridiculous today, I know. But for the people of Israel living under the oppression of Rome, the need for a king, for a liberator, one who would bring God's justice at last was not a ridiculous question. They knew they needed a king. There's an old children's catechism that asks a very profound question. It goes like this. Question. Why do you need Christ as a king? Answer. Because I am weak and helpless. And yet that is the hardest thing for us to admit, is it not? To admit our weakness more than that, to admit even our helplessness. Yet there's one area where we can all admit our weakness and our helplessness. We often ignore it. We sometimes deny it. But the truth is, we will all one day die. Death is the reality, the power that none will escape and none will cheat. In the face of death, we are all weak and helpless. We all need to be rescued. We all need a king. But what sort of king could ever rescue us from death? And that is the second thing Matthew wants us to see in this genealogy. Here is the long-awaited king who brings the new creation. This king has come to do something no other king could do. When all of creation is captive to death and decay, here is the king who will make things new. Now, where do we see the echoes of new creation in Matthew's genealogy? Well, first, in the very opening words, this is the book of the genealogy of... We may not catch it at first, but these words are a deliberate echo of the book of Genesis. Now, this past fall, we spent three months walking through Genesis 1 through 11, and we saw how the phrase, these are the generations of, occurred again and again, beginning all the way back in chapter 2, verse 4, which reads, in Genesis, this is the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, those words in Genesis 2-4 are nearly identical to Matthew's opening line. It's as if Matthew is saying, Genesis told you how God's creation began. Now I'm going to tell you the good news of how God's rescue of creation is fulfilled. You've read the book of the generations of heaven and earth. Now let me begin for you the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The second echo to new creation is in the reference to Jesus being not just the son of David, this king, but also the son of Abraham. Remember in the beginning of Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that in him and in his offspring, the curse of sin and death would be overturned and God's blessing, his righteousness and life would come. Abraham then stood at the turning point of God's redemptive plan to heal and rescue creation. And here, Matthew says, the promise is being fulfilled. Here is the true son of Abraham. 
The third echo to the new creation is found in the symmetry of Matthew's genealogy. As we saw earlier, this could have been a potential reference to the name David. And as we saw in the ancient world, literary artistry was often expressed through a symbolic use of numbers. In a beautiful and in a sophisticated way, even numbers in the hands of these ancient artists could become a way of telling a story. We often see numbers as just sort of cold, calculated things these days, but the ancient people were willing to sweep them up into their works of art. And here, Matthew gives us the number 14 three times. That is, he gives us three pairs of the number seven. Now, if you were an ancient Jewish reader and you see the number seven in some kind of form, you immediately think of what? You think of the seven days of creation. And then your mind goes to the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, when God rested and enjoyed his creation and invited human beings as image bearers into that rest and enjoyment. And then perhaps you think about how every seven years there would be a sabbatical year. A whole year when God told the Israelites to give their land rest from plowing and farming and instead to enjoy the surplus of previous years and what grew naturally of itself. And then perhaps you would think about the year of Jubilee, a sort of once-in-a-lifetime Sabbath of Sabbaths that happened every 49 years. That is every seven times, seven years, when slaves would be freed, when property returned to original owners, when every debt would be canceled in the entire nation. It was a new beginning every seven times, seven years for the entire people. And then you may just think of the prophet Daniel who said that Israel's exile would come to an end not merely in the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted but in seven times 70 years. That's when sin and death would be at long last defeated by the creator God of life. And so could it be that here as we read Matthew's genealogy and we hear of 14, then 14, then 14, that is we hear of six sevens. We suddenly realize that with Jesus, the seventh seven has arrived. The ultimate Sabbath day, the ultimate jubilee, the start of the new creation and the end of our exile. Because what is death? But the ultimate exile, the ultimate separation from our true home. But how would this king accomplish such a feat? The rest of Matthew's gospel tells us how. He would be born of a virgin, the ultimate sign of new creation, and at the same time take on our humanity fully and without reserve. And this king would live his life in utter solidarity with his people. The king would become a subject. His people lived in obscurity. So would he. The first 30 years of his life, he would live in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire called Nazareth. And we all know nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? The people were oppressed. So was he. 
The people lived faithfully under the Mosaic law, so would he. The people faced accusation and threats, so would he. And in the most stunning act of solidarity, his people under the curse of sin, enthralled to the most intractable enemy of all, death itself, in solidarity with his people, this king too would die. Becoming a curse, becoming sin for his sinful people. His people destined for the grave, he too put in a grave among the dead. But how could his defeat help the defeated? How could his weakness help the weak? How could his helplessness help the helpless? How could his death help the dying? Imagine you fail to pay your rent or your mortgage month after month after month after month after month after month. Soon the debt would be so great that eventually your house would be foreclosed or you'd be evicted from your apartment. You would be driven into homelessness, into exile as it were. But what if someone could come and in your name pay your debt for you down to the very last dollar What then? Well, then you could return home. The weight lifted. The price paid. The door opened. You see, when Jesus died, the debt of sin and death was paid. Not his death. He was without sin. He didn't have to die. It was your death. It was your sin. And mine. And that's why three days later God raised him from the dead. In solidarity with his people, he paid the debt of sin in full, and so death could have no longer any hold on him, so he rose, conquering death. Death could no longer hold him, and it will no longer hold those united to him, and it will no longer hold his creation that he has made. One day, creation's bondage to sin and decay will be lifted and all creation will rejoice in its king. And until that day, like our king, we may enter death's gates, but like our king, we will come through the other side in victory on the day of resurrection. Christmas can be so sentimental, can't it? Maybe you thought you were coming to church today to hear a nice little story about gifts and presents and favorite slippers and hot cocoa. Now we're talking about death and resurrection. Welcome to Christmas, friends. There's nothing wrong with traditions, but I hope we see that Christmas is not merely some annual reminder that gratitude and generosity are, after all, maybe a nice thing to do. No. Christmas, the birth of Christ, was the beginning of the end of sin and death and the unleashing of the new creation. God has invaded human history, and your history need never be the same again. The Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Jubilee of Jubilees, is being proclaimed from the first chapter of Matthew's gospel down through the rest of the New Testament into church history right today. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
And will you and I live as if what's true is really true? That our sins can be forgiven in him. That our death will not be our dying in him. That the evil and injustice of our world does not have the last word. That time is not some chaotic string of events, but is held in the hands of our faithful God. And that the door has been opened. And now everyone is invited to come home because the debt's been paid. And that's the last thing Matthew wants us to hear in his genealogy. Is that this king and his new creation are for all people. There are names in this genealogy at first that don't seem to fit. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Some of these women weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. What are they doing in the genealogy of the Jewish king? Some were implicated in scandal. And yet the more we meditate on these names we start to see and we start to become reminded that every name on this list, every single name tells a story of imperfection, of moral failure, of weakness, and of helplessness. But each one still a member of the family of the king. You see, Jesus' family tree isn't for the perfect or for the powerful, or for the righteous, or for the insiders of the world's status. The way into this family isn't by your performance or your pedigree. It's by grace. And the invitation is for you to find your name here. No matter what your family background is, will you Put your name under the name of the king. Yes, with the weak and the helpless, but with the loved and the cherished, with the family of the new creation, where the weak are made strong and where the hopeless find hope and where the sinners are forgiven and where the dead come to life. The family of the king isn't always a pretty place. Hang around the church long enough and you'll see that's true. The old creation still rears its head amidst the new. But the king still calls us his own. And in his love we are moving from death to life together. The way into this family is through faith. That is entrusting yourself to the risen King Jesus and his grace. Friends, are you ready to become a member of his family today? And the way forward in this family is also through faith. That is entrusting ourselves daily to Jesus our King. That by his spirit he would begin to live. We would begin to live now. He in us. We would begin to live now. The new creation life of faith and hope and love. So brothers and sisters, keep trusting in him because your story is not over yet. 
This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, maybe that's not such a bad first line after all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we pause in this moment before coming to your table, we thank you that you have welcomed sinners such as us into your family. God, thank you for cleansing us of sin. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you that in this Christmas season we can remember how you took on flesh for us how you became a human being, how you became a part of the human family so that we, God, could become a part of your family. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for this. Amen.